But if you would this morning, would you go to Psalm 22. I don't often very off course much when it comes to holiday sermons, but I'll do it for Christmas and Easter. Psalm 22, it's going to be structured a little bit differently than what I normally do, Um, but this is just the way that it came to me in my studies, and what I'm going to do, we're just basically going to take a tour of the last hours of Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, and even to His ascension, and so we're going to be building to a crescendo through this whole thing. But before we do that, we need to lay some basic groundwork because I'm going to be preaching on the death and the resurrection of Christ in Psalm 22, which was written about a thousand years before Christ came to this earth. And so we have to, we have to get the right lenses to do this. Uh, there's some ditches that you can get in on either side of this, and I want you to be aware because if you don't, If you don't have the balanced approach to this, you're going to miss something very important. Probably the principles we're going to learn about interpreting something like this uh, is probably more important in in Psalm 22 than anywhere else I can think of, and you're going to see why here in a little bit. But uh, just to lay some groundwork, Psalm 22 is a Messianic psalm written by David, as I said, approximately a thousand years prior to the birth of Christ, but it reads like a New Testament gospel. There is no greater description of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection anywhere else in Scripture. And this is one reason that we know that the Bible is the Word of God is because of the prophetic accuracy. There's no other book that can do what the Bible does. Uh, The Old and New Testaments go hand in hand across thousands of years over multiple locations and over 40 authors in order to provide one unified story. Uh, No wonder Paul was able to say that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, the word inspired, it means the breath of God. God breathed out Scripture uh, through these men. Uh, But when we read texts like Psalm 22, these are the two ditches that we have to be careful to avoid. The first one is reading this text in such a way that we only see it from the perspective of the original Jewish audience with no reference to Christ at all. Uh, There's a lot of scholarship that's written today from that perspective. In fact, uh, the school that I go to, Luther Rice, uh, they're not completely guilty of this ditch, but they certainly lean to this ditch. They're so worried about uh, being too allegorical when we preach the Bible, that sometimes they're very flat when it comes to things like this. In fact, just this week, I had to write a critique of an article that was written by a Yale theologian. And in Haggai chapter 2, there's a prophecy that people in this camp think has been left unfulfilled. There's a prophecy about Zerubbabel both building the foundation of the new temple and finishing it. Well, uh, If you know that story, Zerubbabel started the foundation, but he never finished it. So people in that camp look at that and they say, well, look, God made a promise that he didn't fulfill because they're so flat, they can't see that Jesus is the greater Zerubbabel. (laughs) 
when Jesus said in John 10, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, that's the fulfillment of what Haggai was talking about. So we can't be so flat that we can't see that. Listen, if God made promises He didn't keep, we're all in a lot of trouble this morning. Uh, so we can get too flat, and we can... It, I tell you what's hilarious, though, and I know this is nerdy funny, so it may not be funny to y'all, but if you get a commentary from somebody that's in this ditch, watch them try to wade through texts like Psalm 22 and not see Christ and not mention Christ. It's a very painful exercise, but it's funny to see them try. However, the other ditch that if we're not careful, we can get into is to read Psalm 22 from a New Testament perspective and only see Christ. You have to understand, as I mentioned, Psalm 22 was around a thousand years prior to the coming of Christ, and it had a very real meaning to the Jews that read it. It's a great comfort. Psalm 22 is a great comfort because uh, it is a song of deliverance. You know, the Psalms were songs. And Psalm 22 was a psalm of deliverance. It, it starts out at the beginning uh, with David writing about his affliction and how he felt like he had been forsaken by God and his prayers weren't being heard. But by the time you get to 22, God has heard him and he has delivered him and he breaks out in praise. And so it's a great song of deliverance. But from a New Testament perspective, we clearly see Christ crucified. There's language in here that could not possibly only pertain to David. It's impossible. And so we have to recognize both things, and that becomes very important. We're going to see something toward the end of this message that maybe you've never heard or thought about, but it's, it's pretty incredible, um, just how the Bible goes together. But um, Psalm 22, now remember too something I want to throw out here as well. The Psalms, this is not one book with 150 chapters. These are 150 individual Psalms. And so we wouldn't expect them to go together quite like a, a New Testament gospel that's just one thought all the way through. And yet, being God's book and so unified, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 give us a trilogy of sorts. In Psalm 22, you see the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. In Psalm 23, because of His death and resurrection, He is able to be the good shepherd of His people. Without that, He can't do that. But then you get to Psalm 24, and it's one of the greatest pictures of the ascension of Christ that you'll see anywhere. And so we're going to try to... We're going to stay in Psalm 22 most of the time, but we will skim through, and by the end, we'll, we'll have gone through all three of these psalms and... I know some of you are thinking, well, Brother Brandon, we're going to be here till next Easter if you do that. But it's not going to be like that, I don't think. <laughs> so we cannot, and here's what we have to get. This is the gist of where we're going. We cannot fully comprehend the cry from the cross or the glory from the tomb when we fail to recognize both sides of this, what this would have meant to the Jews and what it means to us when we see this now. Um, with that in mind, I'm just going to pull some things out. We've got, got a lot of scripture, so I'm just going to read and pull as we go. But the, the question that I want to wrestle with, what does Psalm 22 teach us about the cry from the cross and the glory from the tomb? If you were to give this message a title, it would be the cry from the cross and the glory from the tomb. 
The first thing I want you to see, number one, is the agony of the cross, the agony of the death of Christ. Let's read this together, the Word of God here in Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? And as we go through this, I want you to take special note of the amount of prophecies made in Psalm 22 that were fulfilled in the last hours of Jesus' life. We see one right here because this is actually recorded in both Matthew 27, 46 and Mark 15 and verse 34. This is what Jesus said from the cross as He was dying, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? So that was a fulfillment of the prophecy made in Psalm 22, 1. And even though... This was David speaking from a place of affliction. It was pointing to the greater David and the son of David who would die on the cross. That's a prophecy fulfilled. But then in verse 2 it says, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. And I don't want to read too much into this, but I can't read this without thinking that this is a Uh, possible fulfillment in what happened on the cross. If you remember, they nailed him to the cross in the daytime. And yet for three hours while he was on the cross, the sun refused to shine. I can't help but think about Luke chapter 23 and verse 44 when the darkness came. And so he talks about, I cry in the daytime and thou hearest not, and in the night season am not silent. And Uh, Just to throw this out here, some have tried to say, well, you know, that was just a a solar eclipse, which, by the way, if Jesus is on the cross and it just so happened that a solar eclipse happened, that's pretty incredible by itself. But here's what you need to know. Uh, The record for the longest eclipse ever known was only 7 minutes and 28 seconds. The sun refused to shine for three hours when He was on that cross. It's almost like creation was protesting the death of its Creator. And so I can't help but think about that when I read verse 2. But then verse 3 it says, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praise of Israel. Um, Verse 4, Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst, Deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But then in verse 6 it says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh to scorn. Now this is important. All they that see me laugh me to scorn and they shoot out the lip They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Now, these verses give a prophecy. Here's another one that was fulfilled to the letter in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 40. And it says here uh, in Luke, excuse me, in Matthew, And they they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyedest the temple, and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, uh, come down from the cross. 
And so we see almost the exact same language in Matthew that we see here in Psalm 22. This is another prophecy fulfilled. Look at verse 8, or verse 9, excuse me. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. And I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And then in verse 12 and 13 it says, Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. Now, the further we go into this, the more we'll see this animal allegory. He mentions four different types of animals, and they're all wild beasts. And the imagery here is one of an animalistic nature. It's, it's a naturalistic violence. It's almost an instinct. I want you to understand, I know that uh, you know, from time to time we may go different places, maybe somebody's house or maybe a different you know, kind of church or a museum or whatever, and you'll see those pictures of the so-called you know, the, the Da Vinci idea of Jesus on the cross, and it almost looks peaceful. But I want you to understand, this was a violent attack. This was not your average, oh, here's a criminal, let's punish him. No, it was very personal. It was very angry, and it was very violent, almost animalistic in nature. You know, animals, when they attack or when they go hunting, it's an instinct to them. There's no emotion involved. They're not thinking about the rightness or wrongness of the situation. They're just acting out on pure instinct. And when Jesus was on the cross, the hatred of the Jews and the compliance of the Romans, it was an animalistic type thing to where there was no thought to the evil involved. And when I read this imagery, it reminds me of something I read from Richard Wormbrandt. Uh, Wormbrand was a pastor in Romania when the communists overtook Romania overnight. It became illegal to be a Christian. And they arrested him. I mean, he had an underground church for a while, but they found him, they arrested him, they put him in prison for years. And they beat him and tortured him. Uh, One of the main things they would do is they would take these two-by-fours and they had uh, nails through that wood and they would strap him down to a table. They would beat the soles of his feet with those nails. And even after he got out of prison, he never walked right again. And somebody was talking to Wormbrand years after he had been released from prison. And he said, did you ever hate your captors? He said, no, I couldn't do that. He said, well, why not? How how could you not hate them? And he said, well, it's kind of like if, if you had been swimming in the Nile River and been attacked by crocodiles. You couldn't hate the crocodile because he was just doing what came naturally to him. He said his attackers were so depraved, so devoid of any kind of conscience, God had just evidently given them over to their reprobate mind and they were just acting on pure, evil, depraved instinct. That's exactly what Psalm 22 is talking about here when he's compassed about by these bulls and these dogs and these different types of animals that we'll see in, in, in the verse we just mentioned, it talks about a lion, a ravening lion. I, I couldn't help but think about Satan, how 
In 1 Peter 5, 8, it talks about Satan as being a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. And no doubt, listen, you want to know where Satan was on that day? He was in Jerusalem. And he was overseeing this whole thing. There is nothing better that Satan had to do that day. He had put all of his energy and effort and forces into this day. And so... Uh, I imagine if we had been standing there on the sidelines and we had watched the hatred and the violence with which they came after Jesus, it would terrify every one of us. That's who Satan is. He loves chaos. He was a murderer from the beginning. And so this imagery, very, very real about what Jesus went through. Uh, Verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. And so he's talking about some of the physical pain, but we get just a little taste of the spiritual pain that Jesus went through. You know, we have no, we have no idea what it was like for the spotless Lamb of God to wear the sin of the world. It's an unthinkable thing, really. The, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty, it's a very personal thing. My sin was on Jesus Christ in His body on the tree. My personal sin. Not sins like vague, like personal sin that I committed. It's unthinkable that He would wear that and die that and that Jesus would be punished for my sin. Jesus was punished for what I did and what you did. Isn't that amazing? Verse 15, he said, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. This speaks of great thirst. And here's another fulfilled prophecy that we find in John 19 and verse 28, which says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I From the cross, he said, I thirst. And if you remember the story, uh, they gave him uh, some mixture of of myrrh and vinegar, and I'm sure it was very disgusting. It's not something that you would want to drink at any time, but certainly in that condition, he spit it out. And what's amazing about this, there's an old gospel song. I think it was originally sung by the cathedrals, but Ernie Haas and Signature Sound did a great remake of this song. You need to look this up. But the song is called, I Thirst. And the, the chorus of that song has a very simple but profound thought that goes well here. And that song says, um, the chorus says, He said, I thirst, yet He made the rivers. He said, I thirst, yet He made the sea. I thirst, said the King of the ages, yet in His great thirst He brought water to me. The one that created water was thirsty. What an amazing thought. And in his thirst, he brought water to me. Verse 16, it says, For dogs, they're talking about wild dogs, have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now listen, this is is something, if you've got a Bible... Open, you need to underline, circle, highlight, 
squiggly line, asterisk, and whatever else it takes to remind you of this. This is so incredible that only somebody who is determined not to see the truth can't see it. And that is, there's two amazing things that we have to get from this verse here. Uh, Number one, obviously, when he talks about uh, piercing his hands and feet, we're not talking about David at this point. We know who's being talked about, and it's Jesus Christ. Something else that's interesting is not all crucifixion uh, victims were nailed to a cross. Many, including Andrew, uh, they were tied to the cross, so it would take them longer to die. It was a more agonizing death, but yet he's very specific about the fact that his hands and feet were pierced. But something else, you cannot miss this. David is prophesying about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ about 650 years before crucifixion was even invented. There was no such thing in the time that David prophesied this. It's almost as if a transcendent, timeless, omniscient, omnipresent God had him write that. I mean, you know, just kind of reading into things a little bit. David had never heard of crucifixion. He had never seen somebody nailed to a cross. He had never seen a cross. And he is writing about being nailed to a tree. 650 years before the Persians invented crucifixion and then the Romans improved it, if you can say it that way. Isn't that amazing? That God in His transcendence and His omniscience and His omnipresence, not only knowing the future, but decreeing it by His determinate counsel and foreknowledge said this would happen. (laughs) It's an amazing thought. Verse 17 He says, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Now this is about as graphic a description of the cross as you're ever going to get. Uh, This speaks of the damage done to him by the flogging prior to his crucifixion. His ribs would have been visible. Prior to the crucifixion, a Roman soldier whipped him with what's known as a cat of nine tails. And the cat of nine tails had nine lashes or nine fingers that came out on it. And it would be laced with uh, some types of stone, sharp stone or bone or whatever uh, types of uh, alloys or metals they would have had. It was very sharp. And that Roman soldier, he knew how to crack it back at just the right time where those fingers would grab the flesh off of that person all the way to the bones and the tendons and the sinews. It was horrific. It was awful. They did that to him 39 times because it was said that if you whipped a man with a cat of nine tails 40 times, he would die. And they didn't want him to die that quick. And so he would, he would have died from his injuries even before they got him to the cross. If they had just whipped him and left him alone, his chance of survival was almost nil. That's why it says, I, my bones... Uh, stare at me. I can tell them or I can count them. That's how graphic this was. Uh, this, is not, this was not a J.C. Penny model on the cross. He was jello on that cross. Very violent, very ugly, hideous. The, the, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God was beaten in this manner. Uh, it goes on to say in verse 18, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now, here's another fulfilled prophecy. Uh, In Matthew 27 and verse 35, 
It says, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. We just read that. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they did cast lots. Now, when I went to Israel, I got to go to Pilate's court, and you know, the other side of the ocean, the world over there, is just so different than it is here. America is such a young country. Um, You know, everything is so young, relatively speaking, architecture, buildings, and things like that. Uh, You know, Little Sandy, the church that I pastor in Alabama, it was founded in 1836. It was one of the oldest buildings in Tuscaloosa County. But over there, you have things that were built out of stone that are thousands of years old. And even today, you can go to Pilate's court there, and the original stone is still there from Jesus' day. And I actually saw, in, it was engraven in the floor there, in the, in the rock stone floor there. Uh, somebody had taken a tool of some kind. They had engraved some type of gambling board where they could roll dice. And, and uh, Now, whether it's the original, uh, I don't know, but you read in the Gospels where when the soldiers cast lots, they were sitting down as if they were doing it in the floor. It could be, I don't know, but even if it's not, it's very reminiscent of what it would have looked like. And it was just so surreal being in that place and seeing that. And I, my mind went back to that Scripture. that they, they literally ripped, understand, they ripped the clothes off of Jesus. He was at least partially, if not completely, naked on that cross. I mean, they, they didn't leave Him any dignity at all. And then not only that, they ripped his garment apart and then gambled for it. They kept it as some type of trophy. That's what they did to our Lord. Um, so we've seen, and I know it's taken a while to get through this. We're building up here to this point in verse 22. We have seen the agony of the cross, what he went through. And, but that's not where it's left. I told you that Psalm 22 is a song of deliverance. And in verse 22... We, be, we begin to see resurrection language. So we see not only the agony of the cross, but number two, we see the authority on the cross. Uh, we must understand that although Christ was victimized, He was not a victim. They did not take His life from Him. He freely gave it. And if you wonder how sovereign Christ was over His death, We're going to see this when we go through John. But think about this. He had to give Judas permission in order to betray him. When Satan possessed him, Jesus looked at him and said, What you do, do quickly. Now whether he was talking to Satan or Judas or both, I don't know. He had had authority over all of them, though. I do know that. So he had to give Judas permission to betray him. He had to give the Roman soldiers permission to arrest him. You remember when they showed up at nighttime all big and bad with their torches and uh, their swords and everything they brought with them? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am He. And they fell down. All of them fell backwards like dead men. He said, hey, I'm, I'm right here. And they were, it's like they were terrified of Him. I don't know what happened. He must have peeled back that flesh just a little bit and let Him see just a little bit of, of His glory. But he finally just say, had to say, like, here I am. I mean, you can let all them go if you want me. You know, you can have me. So he had to basically talk them up to arrest him. Like, it's going to be okay. You can do this. <laughs> so he had to give the soldiers permission to arrest him. And then even on the cross, 
He gave death permission to take him. Death didn't take him one second before he was ready. Not one second before he said, it is finished. And so Christ was in control from beginning to end. He freely gave his life. And when you get to verse 22, in Psalm 22, this is where the resurrection language begins. Uh, Read this with me, verse 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Dead people can't do that. This, was, uh, this is another prophecy fulfilled. Because uh, when you get uh, over to Luke, uh, it talks about uh, when he told Mary, he said, I'm not, don't touch me, I'm not ascended to my father. He said, I'm going to declare the father to the brethren. That's exactly what he said. And so we see that Christ was able to proclaim the name and, and praise the name of God the Father even after uh, His resurrection. We see this also in John 20 and verse 17. Uh, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. <laughs> That's amazing. Verse, verse 23 through 30 is all resurrection language. Let's just read this quickly. And I am coming in for a landing here. Uh, it says, verse 23, You that fear the Lord, praise Him. All ye seed of Jacob, glorify Him. And fear Him, all ye the seed of Israel. Now, we need to pay attention here in verse 24. For He hath not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath He hid His face from Him. But when He cried unto Him, He heard... David didn't just say, God delivered me. He said, He delivered him. Who did he deliver? He delivered Christ. Well, how did he do that when he got him up from the grave three days later? And so David is not just celebrating because he said, He delivered me. He's celebrating because of this event in which He would deliver him, in which God the Father would deliver Christ. This becomes really important in a minute. Y'all just put a pen in that. Verse 25, my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Now remember... This is what Satan promised Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You'll just bow down and worship me. Christ got that anyway. But what Satan was saying is, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world without the cross. He's got that temptation today for a lot of people as well. But he says in verse 29, All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship, and they that go down to the dust shall bow before him and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. Past tense, he hath done this. It is finished. But as we come to a close... Uh, we have to get this. this. This is something we cannot miss, and this is why it's so important to discern between what Psalm 22 would have meant to the Jews prior to Christ 
and what it means now that we have all these things uh, fulfilled and, and gathered for us uh, in Scripture. But when Jesus was on the cross and He, he cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, uh, or my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was quoting, as we just saw, He was quoting the opening line of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 and verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But man, we have to get this. He was not just quoting from Psalm 22 and verse 1. He was pointing the Jewish mind to Psalm 22 as a whole. (laughs) And to kind of prove the point I'm talking about, remember Psalm 22 is a song. It's a song of deliverance. And in certain songs that are really important to us and ones that are really well known, you hear the first line and your mind immediately goes to the second line, doesn't it? I'm fixing to prove it. Now, y'all sing out for me, okay? I'm going to say a line of a song. I'm going to point to you and you sing it or say it out loud. Amazing grace. See how that works? Or or we could do... um, on Christ the solid rock I stand. And can it be? When I give you the first line of the song, your mind goes to the next one. That is exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross. When He gives them that first line, and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Their mind is going to the deliverance in that song. And so this is not a hopeless cry. You know what, he, you know what Jesus is saying? This is a clever way of saying that God is going to deliver me. I'll see you in a little bit. That's exactly what he's saying. He is not just quoting the first verse in Psalm 22. He is pleading, he's making appeal to the Jewish mind about the song itself because the whole second half, as we've seen, is about resurrection. He had no doubts about what was going to happen when he died. He was literally telling them what was going to happen. And so we see the, the even from the cry on the cross, it's a prophecy, it's a promise of resurrection. And because of His death, burial, and resurrection, He is able to be the good shepherd of our soul. And we find that in Psalm 23. I'm not going to read it. You know it well. But without His death, burial, and resurrection, He can't do that. He's not qualified. He's not able any more than somebody else who didn't die and rise from the dead. But then, uh, in fact, uh, I do want to read this in reference to that if you want to take notes on this. Hebrews 13 and verse 20 brings this truth out. It says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Without that, He can't be our shepherd. But by the time we get to Psalm 24, we're almost done. By the time we get to Psalm 24, I do want you to understand that in its historical context, it's talking about the fact that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines for a long time and it had been rescued and it was being brought back to the temple and the the imagery there is of them walking the Ark of the Covenant back up the hill to the temple. Great time of celebration for the Jews. There's no doubt about that. 
But once again, in Psalm 24, there's language that could not just be applied to that event in history. It, it has to be tied to Jesus. And to me, there's no greater language on the ascension anywhere in Scripture. And so, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? What happened after He rose from the dead? Well, He walked this earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and then He ascended to the right hand of God in glory. And so let's read this and we're done. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Look, Christ is not waiting to rule and reign. He's ruling and reigning now. For He hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in His holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of him that, them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so we read this, and it's, it reminds us of when Christ came home to heaven after His ascension. Can you imagine seeing it? He's been gone for 33 and a half years or so. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. And then He ascends on high. And the gates open. And the band plays. And the chorus sings. And all the heavenly hosts... So can you imagine the moment that He walked through that gate? <laughs> it's an unimaginable thought. Totally victorious. Mission accomplished. Absolutely according to plan. 100% success. And so we see the glory of the death, burial, and resurrection that culminated in His ascension and He is seated at the right hand of God making intercession for His people. And so we have the greatest story that's ever been told and every bit of it is true. This is why we celebrate. This is why we have hope because Jesus Christ, the Creator of all things, he was born of a virgin. And as fully God and fully man, He lived a sinless life. We could never live that sinless life. We could never be that pure in heart. We could never have our hands that clean. And so He lived for us. He fulfilled the law of God for us. And when He died on the cross, God the Father placed our sins in Jesus Christ. He had his, our sin in His body on the tree. And He punished Jesus for what we did. His wrath was satisfied against our sin in the sacrifice of Jesus. And then to prove that He was satisfied with that sacrifice, He raised Him from the dead three days later, never to die again. That's our hope. And if that's not true, we have no hope. But because He rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead as well. We will have eternity in heaven with Him, but that's only true if you know Him as your personal Lord and Savior. And if you don't know Him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says you need to repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Repent of your sin and your dead works and your self-righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ alone because Jesus is enough. The gospel doesn't need any help. It doesn't need any additional priest because He's our great high priest. We don't need another mediator. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is salvation. And there is salvation in none other. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto God but by Him. Do you know Him? If you do, do you know the joy in knowing Him? Because this, hey, this will lift you up on a bad day because it's true and it will always be true. They couldn't keep Him in the grave. They can't get Him back in the grave. The world detests it. But it's true and it's our greatest hope. And we need to carry it with us wherever we go.